Right, so this morning we're looking at um, worship as covenant renewal, and there is a chapter in Jonathan Cruz's book that deals all um, with this topic, and it's uh, chapter 5. So if you want to reinforce what's, you know, what's been taught today, um, go and have a study of chapter 5. Um, but also, just before we get into today's topic, um, didn't have much time last week to go into the, um, what we call the, the regulative principle of worship as much as I would have liked, or the RPW. And just to say um, one or two things concerning the, what we understand by the regulative principle, some folks can understand it as a very restrictive thing regarding worship. It's a whole lot of lists of what you can't do. And certainly that's true, okay, because it's God who gets to decide how he is worshipped. And therefore it means that there are certain things that, that we ought not to do. And that's, that's, that's a good thing. But there's also an a, a aspect of, of freedom that comes with it. Um, uh, that it's to do with our Christian liberty. In that... The how we see things unfold in, in church history, and this is certainly the context of the the Westminster Confession of Faith, and um, which was written by you know a lot of the Puritans in the, in the 17th century in England, was that the Anglican Church at that time was uh, exercising its authority tyrannously over the people, specifically with regards to worship. They were binding their consciences on, on um, wish of getting people in the congregation to worship according to practices that were not in the Bible. And that was a lot of what's driving all this. So the regulative principle, what it does is it, 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 that it, it, it states that the only thing that can bind the conscience of a Christian is the Word of God. So therefore, it frees you all from the tyranny of a pastor or a denomination who would want to say, okay, today in worship, you're going to run around the church in a conga line or uh, stand on a chair and, you know, twirl around three times. Uh, yeah, I'll leave the rest up to your imagination. <laughs> okay, but it's a safeguard to the church. So you, it, and it preserves Christian freedom with regard to worship. So any quick questions regarding that before you get into today's uh, topic? Okay, cool. I, 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 I have been forced into a conga line in church, and so I would never um, impose that here. Just uh, <laughs> just. <laughs> Okay, today's topic, um, worship is covenant renewal. So as looked at last week, um, the hard, it, a big thing that happens when we worship the Lord is that we enter into the presence of God. Now, for sinners to enter before the presence of a holy God that should be an absolutely terrifying thing. God is holy and we not. And in God's perfect justice, he would be correct and just to stri strike us all down. 
But for us as believers in Christ, that's not the case, right? When we come to worship the Lord, does that happen? Thankfully not. Okay, and there's, I mean, that's why Hebrews 10 verse 19 calls those of us who believe in Christ um, to enter the presence of God with confidence. Okay, that we can draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith. That's verse 22 in Hebrews 10. So we have to ask the question, well, why is that so? How can us sinners enter the presence of a holy God and we are called to do so not with terror and, and terror, but with actually with, with confidence and, and full assurance of um, faith, knowing that he's not going to burn us up with his wrath, but he's going to welcome in, welcome us in by his grace. Why is this so? Well, the heart of the answer has to do with God's covenant with his people. And we need to understand that God doesn't have an unmediated relationship with us. Okay, we, we don't approach Jesus as if he's our boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever terrible analogy you, you want to use. Okay, we, the problem is because our culture has been so influenced by Western individualism, we tend to look at our relationship with God very much on individualistic terms, that it's just, the, it's, it's, it's me and him and that's it. There's no other context besides this very personalized um, relationship with God. And the, the thing is, there's, Certainly, it's not incorrect to say that we have a personal relationship with, with Jesus. Okay, that's a fair thing to say. But what you need to understand is that it's a whole lot more than just a personal relationship with Jesus. Our relationship with the Lord is established through covenants, through a series of promises, these arrangements that set the terms for the relationship. And those terms are set not by us. We don't get to set the terms of how we relate to God. Instead, it's the other way around. God decides how he sets, he sets the terms for our relationship with him. And that is through um, covenants. And that is, the, the reason for that, what the, God's covenants enable, is the relationship of a sinful people with a holy God. That is why there needs to be a covenant in order to facilitate this. And so when we talk about worship as covenant renewal, we look at it very much captures the corporate relationship that God has with his church. That it's an oxymoron to have to be a Christian. Um, welcome V, just started. Um, to be a Christian in isolation. That is, it doesn't compute biblically, okay? We, we have, yes, we certainly have an individual relationship with God, but it's, well, the more important relationship with God is what is the relationship God has with his church. God has with us here. And there's something that happens in the worship service every Lord's Day that 
by which God renews his covenant promises to us as his people. And that's what we're going to um, get into um, in these couple of minutes. So any questions very quickly before we carry on? Okay, let's get into it. Let's go all the way back to um, Adam and Eve in the garden. And if we look at Adam and Eve, we already see that God related to Adam and Eve through a covenantal relationship. Okay, we call this in um, Reformed theology a covenant of works. So he placed Adam and Eve in the garden and said to them, essentially, do this and live. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. So the terms of the relationship that God had with Adam and Eve were that you can live in God's presence uh, perpetually. You can earn and enjoy eternal life as long as you perpetually obey the Lord by not eating from the tree of, of good and evil. And so we know that before they sinned, before they broke the covenant... God dwelt among them freely. There was no barrier between God's people and God. But it, that barrier and that, that rift only comes in once they broke the covenant. Then they sinned and they disobeyed God. And there they were, then they were expelled from the presence of the Lord. They were kicked out of the garden. Okay? The garden represents the presence of the Lord because they had broken the terms of the covenant. So you think, oh, well, that's it. You know, Adam and Eve blew it, so God no longer has relationship with his people. Well, if we know our Bibles, that's not how the story ends. Though they were expelled from Eden, from the presence of God, God still made a way for Adam and his descendants to meet with him. And you already see this in the garden. Something very interesting happens as after God has pronounced curses on Adam and Eve and the serpent, there's something else that, that, that God does. Anybody remember? Okay, before, before that. Okay, remember, because they've broken the covenant, the, 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 the covenant penalty was that they would surely die. But interestingly, God doesn't kill them. He kills the animals in their place. Okay, that's Genesis 3, 21. And he clothes them in the skin of animals. And so we see there's a, the animal's blood is shed instead of Adam and Eve's. And essentially they have, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they cleansed of their sins so that they can enter um, God's presence. And so it's this truth of um uh, of sacrifice or substitutionary atonement that is the th- one of the major themes of, of of the rest of scripture and continues throughout the old testament and especially we see this with how god relates to israel okay so um israel they uh, are able to enter into god's presence even though they continue to sin so we need to understand why, why that is. Okay, so it's all rooted in the covenant that God then makes with the nation of Israel. And you see that um, start off with 
God freeing Israel from slavery in Egypt and delivering them, saving them by his mighty hand and outstretched arm through the Red Sea. And what is the purpose of Israel's salvation? Anyone can remember. Why does Moses ask the Lord to free Israel from Egypt? So that they may worship him. Okay, Exodus 4.23. So he delivers them from Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai. And that's where the covenant is established with, with Israel through Moses. So if you've got your Bibles here, please turn to Exodus 24. Because this passage describes the covenant-making ceremony. And as we're going to see in a few minutes, this covenant-making ceremony is essentially the blueprint for our worship service today. Well, yeah, these days. So verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read it all. I'll summarize it for you. What happens in the first two verses is that God summons Moses and the 70 elders of Israel to worship him before his presence. So it's always God who takes the initiative in calling his people to worship him. God summons uh, Moses and the 70 elders. And then in verse 3, having received God's words or the the commandments, the Ten Commandments, the the law, the Torah, um, Moses then speaks these words to The assembly or the church, the Old Testament church, the people of Israel who are gathered there for worship. So once they hear God's words uh, spoken to them, they respond to those words and they say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So there's a promise here that as God's people who has been set apart for him, they are going to. They promise to serve God alone. They promise not to go into idolatry and, 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 and false worship. And so what we see there is that God consecrates them. God makes them holy through his word. Then verse 5 to 8 carries on and things get a bit bloody. That oxen are sacrificed. So Moses then throws half the blood of the oxen against the the altar where the sacrifices are made. And then he gets the other half and he chucks it all over the people. Okay, so why does he do this? Well, it's coming back to what we saw in Eden. Okay, that a sacrifice is made on behalf of the people. Atonement is made for sins and the result of that atonement the result of that blood being shed instead of the blood of the people of Israel is what peace with god sinful people can now enter the presence of the holy god because god's wrath has been appeased because blood has been shed Okay, so it's, it's, it's showing the forgiveness, the sign of the forgiveness of sins, but it's also something else. The blood in the Mosaic Covenant is a reminder for the penalty of breaking that covenant 
is that blood is shed as well, like it was in the covenant of works. So then verses 9 to 11, something very interesting. Often uh, skim through this when you read a passage like this, is that once the covenant has been made between God and Israel, Moses and the elders, what do they do? They sit down and they eat and drink before the presence of the Lord. Okay, they have a covenant meal before his presence. Why would they do that? Why do you typically have a meal with someone? Yeah, you want to hang out. <laughs> you want to enjoy their presence. You usually, you invite your friends over. Okay, so when God calls a meal with his people, saying, well, you guys are at peace with me. Come and sit down and enjoy my presence. Enjoy, and that's why we call it communion as well. Communion is that we get to enjoy the presence of God. We commune with him. We participate um, in a relationship with him. So then we look at Israel's history after that. It's like the rest of the Old Testament. Do they obey that law that they promised to obey then in Exodus 24? Do they obey the terms of the covenant? No. Okay, they're continually disobedient. But thankfully, the, it was because of the blood of the animals, which was continually shed year after year for sins, that temporarily allowed them to enter the presence of, uh, of God. But ultimately, those annual, even sometimes daily sacrifices of animals were not effectively able to deal with sin. They weren't able to get to the, the root of the problem. So what is the point then of all those sacrifices? Well, they're all pointing to the true sacrifice. Okay, Jesus himself, who Hebrews 12, see in a minute, was called the mediator of the new forgiveness of sins and because of that means that we can freely we are freely able to enter into the presence of God as God's covenant people so you got your Bibles here um, it's a good one last scripture Hebrews 12 18 to 24 for you have not come to what may be touched the blazing fire and darkness, gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Welcome, Janaka. You can leave it open now. The hordes have left. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God. Welcome. <laughs> We're just finishing off a, a quick Sunday school class, so you can, you can welcome to sit. 
Um, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, that is a majestic passage. What we see here is a contrast between Old Covenant worship and New Covenant worship. The first couple of verses are talking about a terrifying mountain, which is Mount Sinai, okay, which is associated with the Old Covenant. That's where Moses and Israel received the Old Covenant from. Um, but now, as Christians... Do we, does God meet us on, on, on the top of uh, Mount Sinai? Just big stormy cloud and uh, you know, terrifying. If you touch it, you will die. Where does he meet us? Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And that is what characterizes new covenant worship. So in a, in a real sense, when Christians gather to, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, we are brought into the presence of God as if we are on Mount Zion itself. We join worship with all the angels and um, uh, everyone in heaven um, to, to worship the Lord through our mediator the new, of the new covenant, Jesus Christ. So this means that our worship services today are rooted in our renewal of God's covenant with us. So we still have roots. There's still a sense of continuity in terms of our, the, the, the old covenant worship that Israel um, had in Exodus 24. But in the new covenant, it's fulfilled. It's, it's, it's perfected. And so let me very briefly explain. Okay, when God... When we come together, well, in, in a couple of minutes, we start off with what? A call to worship. Because it's God himself who calls his people to worship through the name of Jesus. Just like God called Israel to worship him in Exodus 24. Then, part of this covenant renewal is that God reminds us that our sins have been forgiven through, through Christ. Not through, anymore in the old covenant, through the blood of bulls and and oxen, but by the blood of Christ. And so that's why we confess our sins um, before the Lord. And that we, there's a declaration of forgiveness. Through, through the promises of God's word, we are reminded that in Christ, our sins indeed are forgiven us as far as the east is, is from the, the west. And even though we deserve wrath, instead we, we receive grace and mercy as we come before his presence. Okay, then we see that, that God consecrates us. He makes us, his people, holy. And he does that through speaking his word to us. Whether it's through the, the reading of, of scripture, which is throughout our services, um, to really uh, the, the preaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel. And then we see that God, like he had a covenant meal with his people in Exodus 24, he has a covenant meal with us. And we're going to enjoy that today later on. Um, through the Lord's Supper, uh, which is a sign that God is now at, at peace with us and that he strengthens us by his grace through his, his spirit. And then at the end of the service, God blesses us and commissions us. And that's what the benediction is about. He sends us out into the world 
for his glory. And then we respond as his covenant people. We respond in the service through singing praises to him, through, through um, our prayer to him. And through it all, okay, God is transforming us increasingly according to the image of Christ by the power of the Spirit and sanctifying us by his grace as his covenant people. And so essentially every Lord's Day worship service is a renewal of these covenant promises of God to us. That we are reminded every Lord's Day that in Christ our sins are forgiven. God is indeed faithful to us even when we are unfaithful. That he is good and his mercy endures forever. Any questions? Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that uh, speaks truth into our hearts, that brings uh, light into our lives and grows us up in our faith in Christ. And so Lord, as we move now to the worship service, Lord, we ask that you would give us um, eager hearts and um, teachable hearts to, to, to hear your word, that you would be glorified in all these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.